I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five, presented by Interac. Did you know that you can now pay with Interac Debit on your mobile or wearable device? Visit interact.ca for more info. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know more about the regulations at the Continental Hotel than I do about the House of Commons Procedure and Practice Rulebook. And that's kind of a problem, so that's why I'm inviting really smart people onto this show to explain things to me like I'm five. I have here in the studio with me today Michael Ferguson, the Auditor General of Canada. And when I think of the word audit, I'm a little bit frightened because it means if I'm hearing the word audit, I've done something wrong at work or I've done something wrong on my taxes or something like that. Um, And so um, I would like to ask you, what is an Auditor General? Well, first, let me say that uh, audits sometimes also tell you what you've done right. This is true. Um, so they're not they're not always bad. In fact, we audit the financial statements of the government of Canada, for example, and for the last, I believe it's 19 years in a row, we've been able to say that the government produces financial statements that you can rely on and fairly presents its financial position and its results. So sometimes we do have good news. <laughs> um, <clears throat> The role, the role of an auditor general, uh, so what I am is I'm what's referred to as an agent of parliament. Now, what that really means is um, my only boss is parliament. Okay? okay, So I don't report to the prime minister. I don't report to the minister of finance. I report to parliament. Um, and what that does is it gives me the freedom to do the audits that we need to do. Now, when we do audits, sometimes we audit a set of financial statements. So, for example, the financial statements of the government of Canada. Sometimes we audit programs of the government, right? And we say, well, what was the objective of this program? Right. What was it supposed to achieve? Is it achieving that? Does the government know whether it's achieving its objectives? And we will produce that type of a ro- report in what's called a, a performance audit okay but I think the most important thing for you to know is that again in my role in this role we are independent we're objective we're nonpartisan um, and we have the ability and the freedom to function that way again like I say I don't report to the prime minister I Mm -hmm. don't report to any minister Um, so that gives us the independence and the freedom we need I have a 10-year appointment um, so that you know that gives me a long time frame in, in order to do the work right and um, um, and so actually that that brings up an interesting question your ten year appointment what was your career path to get to here? How did you become uh, auditor general well i 'm originally from New Brunswick um, and and when I was in New Brunswick, I started out uh, with what was then referred to as a chartered accounting firm to okay. get my, my chartered accountant designation, which is now a chartered professional accountant designation. Um, so I worked for them for a while, and then I went to work for the uh, government of New Brunswick. Um, eventually, I became the controller for the province of New Brunswick. Um, after that, I spent five years as the auditor general in New Brunswick. I was appointed auditor general there. Um, Then I went sort of back inside government for one year as Deputy Minister of Finance um, uh, in in New Brunswick, and then I received this opportunity to come here. So I've had had the chance to see 
a government, albeit a smaller one in New Brunswick, right. both from the point of view of the people you know, preparing financial statements and trying to run programs, and also the point of view of an auditor coming in and looking at how those programs are run. So in fact, in New Brunswick, I found myself eventually in the situation of having to try and implement on recommendations I had made when I was <laughs> Auditor General. So. Excellent. Well, I mean, at least you would know uh, in detail why you had made those recommendations. So. Well, and it, it, it taught me as an auditor that one of the things you have to do is make sure your recommendations are reasonable Ooh, and can be implemented, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. As an auditor, it's very easy to, to, to just make all kinds of recommendations. Like, for example, you should implement a new payroll system. Um, <laughs> And uh, without without realizing all of the work and the effort that needs events, to go yeah. behind something like that. Fantastic. So what does your day look like day to day? Um, my day is pretty simple, uh, you know, because what we do is audits and we just churn through audits. We audit. Um, well, in addition to the audits we do federally, we are also the Auditor General for each of the three northern territories. Okay. okay? Yeah. So we have teams up in the north in each of the territories all the time. So my day um, is just a, a bunch of the same stuff, right? Looking at different audits, either financial audits or performance audits. Um, because we always have audits uh, on the go. I mean, I've also got administrative duties within the office and dealing with, with those types of things we all like to deal with, like HR issues and, <laughs> and those types of things. Yep. But fundamentally, it's all about getting different audits out, and we're just on a we're on a we're, we're a machine, I guess, right. that One's is continually. Done and then it's time to do that's the next. right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you brought up the payroll system earlier, and that is something that we want to talk about uh, today. Uh, you had you had referred to it as an incomprehensible failure of project management and oversight, and um, incomprehensible is a big word. And uh, I'm hoping you can make it a little bit comprehensible for us today. Um, so, with the Phoenix Pay System, what was it supposed to do? Well, it's fundamentally it's supposed to pay federal civil servants uh, right. every two weeks whatever they are owed for working for the federal government. Right. Um, uh, and and in this case, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time actually trying to explain an adjective, right? Trying to explain incomprehensible. Yes. And in this case, sort of to your point, um, it is very comprehensible. It is very understandable what happened. Right. What is incomprehensible is how could it have happened? Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Why was it allowed to have happened? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we can talk about, you know, what happened and how did it happen, and I think we will be able to understand that. That part is not the incomprehensible part. Yeah. What's incomprehensible is how could it have happened. Right. Um, and so it's it was a pay system. It was supposed to pay everybody every two weeks. Um, what was it? Why were we changing the existing system? Well, they had a system before that paid people. Um, that system was 40 years old, so that okay. takes you back probably, you know, I'm not sure the starting point, but probably back somewhere around 1970. Um, you know, so the technology was old, the system wasn't supported, it wasn't doing the things that they wanted the system to do. Right. Um, so they felt it was time to put in place a modern system. And and I have no problem with that as yeah. a decision point and something that needed to be done. That does make sense. Right. Um, so when and how did we see that things were not going well? Well, <clears throat> um, I guess there's two parts to that question. 
Um, when it actually became known that things were not going well was shortly after they flipped the switch to turn the new system <laughs> yeah. on, right, the, yeah. the, the Phoenix Pay system on. That was really when they started to realize that things weren't going as well as they needed to be going. Um, our point in the audit that we released was that, in fact, there were many signs along the way that should have been obvious that this system was not going to work the way that it was supposed to work. Okay. Um, but but those signs were not really recognized and identified until it was too late, until the system was already in place, the errors were starting to pile up, right. the errors were getting ahead of them so that they couldn't fix them, and more errors were coming in, and therefore they kept getting further and further behind. And and when did you become involved? When was the... When was the the Office of the Auditor General like brought on board to to look at this stuff? Well, we ended up issuing two audits. Um, one would have been in the fall of 2017 and the other one in the spring of 2018, so this past spring. Um, and it takes us, uh, you know, a little more than a year to do the audit. Um, so we probably started somewhere around... Uh, oh, may, probably just about two years ago, a little more than two years okay. ago, in, in 2016 was when we started. So the system was put in place, in f- part of it in February yep. of 2016 and part of it in April of 2016. We started to do the audit um, probably about June or July okay. of 2016. So it's when that second, the second part of it came on in into place and was also not working. Or? Well, and and yeah. there, you know, there were more. There was more and more conversation about um, the types of errors that were happening mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, and and in fact, what we decided at the time was to divide the audit into two. Okay. Because we felt the first thing we needed to look at was well, what was the government. Um, particularly Public Service and Procurement Canada, what were they doing to try and fix the problems? And we felt that we would best be able to actually provide some some value by helping them uh, identify what they need to do to fix the problems and then come back later on to try and do essentially the post-mortem on, well, how did it happen? But we felt first it was most important to try and say, well, you know what is it that um, what is it that needs to be done? And I can remember when we were doing starting that first audit on well, what is it that they need to need to be done? I knew we weren't going to be able to release the audit until the fall of 2017. And my biggest concern at that time, in terms of an audit risk, was well, what happens if they get this all sorted out um, <laughs> before we actually report? Right. Which. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, however you look at that, they weren't able to do. Right. Um, and therefore, we still, you know, we still had a report. And unfortunately, they still have um, the same types of problems even today. Right. So, what are the problems that they're having? Like people, I people aren't getting paid, or people aren't getting paid on time, or people are being paid wrongly, or uh, all of the above. Okay. You know, so it's it's a whole series of different problems. Uh, For some people, um, the problems are more serious than for others. But in some cases, you're talking significant amounts of money. I think, um, you know, last year, we reported that if you put together the total amount that government employees have, for the government employees who have been paid too much, right, and the government employees who have not been paid enough, you just add up all of those numbers, you get to about half a billion dollars. Um, you know, worth of worth of error. So it's it's very significant. 
what was it that went wrong? Was it a single thing, or is it a whole series of things? Or well, it's there's a there, there's a long history to it, and I think it's it's a series of things. So they they started the project. When this type of a project gets started, usually a department. In this case, it would have been public public service and procurement Canada. When they start this type of a project, um, they probably are not going to be able to fund it themselves. So they need some funding in order to be able to put the project in place. So one of the first things they would have done was gone to Treasury Board to get approval for the project. And when they did that, they told Treasury Board essentially that the project was going to cost about $300 million. And once it was implemented, the project would save $70 million a year. Okay. Okay. So in other words, it would pay for itself in about five years. Which is pretty great. Which is almost to the extent of unbelievable. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and and of the $300 million cost, about $150 million of it was going to be actually for the IT, the information technology okay. component, the computer component, right? There were going to have to be other things to be done as well, changing processes and some of those sorts of things. And and so they took that that business case, you know, give us $300 million to do this system and we will we will uh, start providing savings of $70 million a year as soon as we implement. Most of those savings were going to come from the fact that they said the new system would would require fewer people in positions called pay advisors, would require significantly fewer of them to be able to process pay because the old system being 40 years old was very manual. There were a lot of calculations that needed to be done on paper. The new system, state-of-the-art system, um, was going to be able to automate a lot of those processes, so that's where the savings would come from. Mm -hmm. Okay, But then what happened was... um, so they they selected the software, the underlying pay system, which is a system called PeopleSoft. Very sophisticated system. Um, it's it's um, an, an Oracle product um, used in a lot of different places to uh, for for payroll, right? So so it is it's a system used widely. But and they also hired IBM um, to come in and help them actually implement the system. But it was still PSPC, still the government department that was responsible and managing that project. So when they brought IBM in, the first thing they did was they said to IBM, here's what we want the system to do, the IT system, the computer system. And IBM said, well, you can't do that for $150 million. That's going to cost you $270 million. Right. Okay. So at that point, they had a decision to make, right? Do we go back to Treasury Board? to ask for more money, right? Uh, or do we try and still do the system within the $150 million, the, the, the IT part of it, within the $150 million that we were approved? And that's what they decided to do. Okay. okay. So to do that, they had to cut out a whole bunch of what's called functionality, a whole bunch of things that the new system was going to automate. They had to cut those out. Okay, So the system now was not going to deliver what they originally said it was going to deliver. At that point, they should have recognized that, well, wait a minute, if we can't automate everything, we aren't going to be able to cut the workforce by as much as we said, and therefore we won't be able to save the $70 million. Okay, So they should have gone back to Treasury Board at that point in time and either told them we need more money or 
we are not going to be able to produce $70 million a year in right. savings. They cut out things like being able to deal with retroactive payments, right? Okay. Um, which is something that happens a lot in the government world, right? People get paid for a pay period. Then there's, let's say, a collective agreement that that goes back. Right, and adjusts pay. Over. And adjusts yeah. pay that's already been paid, right? Well, that, those are retroactive payments. And the system was originally intended to be able to deal with those, but as soon as you cut that out, all of that work has to be done manually, but they've cut out the people, okay? So that was the, and in fact, that was the second, so the first indication was you wanted to spend $150 million, it's going to cost $270 million. They cut back a whole bunch of things, but they didn't realize that that was going to cut back on the savings, right. okay? So that was the first sort of obvious point that, that this system wasn't going to function. The second obvious point was the 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 pay advisors that I mentioned. Well, the pay advisors used to be in all of the individual departments. Mm-hmm. Okay, what they decided was, um, and this was the former government. They, what they decided was that they were going to um, centralize, as part of all of this project, they were going to centralize the pay advisors in Miramichi, New Brunswick. Okay, right. bring them all together, um, centralize them there, teach them the new system, and and they would do the processing from a centralized place rather than a whole bunch of people in a whole bunch of departments. Um, and what they knew at that point in time was each pay advisor in the departments was able to deal with, let's call it 180 files, right? So they were able to deal with the pay of about 180 people. Okay. What they did when they put together this business case that said we can now reduce the number of people that we need and and save the $70 million a year, what they said was, well, as soon as we put all of these pay advisors together, there's going to be synergies just because they're all together. So therefore, instead of being able to handle 180 files each, they will handle 200 files each. Then when we give them this new automated system, they will be able to handle 400 files each. So going from 180 in the old system to 400 files each in the new system with all of the automation. The problem was, just before they actually went live with the new system, these people who were operating in Miramichi in that centralized group, they, they weren't handling 200 files. They weren't even handling the 180 files that were handled before in departments. They were only being able to process 150 files. So they were actually in a worse place in terms of number of files, not a better place. And there was no way they were going to get to the 400 because right. a lot of that automation had been cut out. Nevertheless, all of the files for the departments um, that were centralized, all of those files were handed over to these people. And that was at a volume of 400 per person. So they were handed 400 per person at a point in time when they were only dealing with 150, 150 per person. Okay, yeah. okay. So again, PSPC should have recognized that 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 Miramichi. There was no way that Miramichi was going to be able to handle the 400 files per person. Now, part of it was, you know, a lot of the former pay advisors they retired, they changed jobs, um, they 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 left the workforce, they didn't want to move to Miramichi, New Brunswick. So you end up with a whole bunch of new pay advisors trying to learn the job, trying to learn a new system. Um, And and it was obvious that they were struggling even before the new system went in because they could only handle 150 files, okay? So that was the second, um, you know, I guess, significant indicator that this system was not going to work. Right. 
So where are we at now? You said your your first report was recommendations on how to how to get to the right place. Um, so what what kind of recommendations were in there, and are we are we doing that? In the two audits, there were a couple of things that are pretty similar, okay? Mm -hmm. One of the first things that is pretty similar is the fact that in both cases, both in the implementation of the system and in the how do we fix this now that we've got this mess, the government, particularly probably um, PSPC, perhaps Treasury Board Secretariat as well, didn't really realize the problems the extent of right that, yeah, okay. that that were there right so so they went ahead with the implementation of the system despite the problems i just described similarly once the problem started building up so the new systems in place they get 400 files per pay advisor the pay advisors can't handle them there's a backlog building up the system is creating errors that's creating more things going into the backlog so the backlog keeps building up well, at that point in time, PSPC said, we're going to have this all solved by October 2016. All right, so they thought they could deal with all of the backlog, you know, that this was just a matter of it was a transition thing, and they were going to have it all dealt with by October of 2016. By the time we came in and did that first audit, um, I think we went up to June of 2017, and we identified at that point that there were almost 150,000 people that had outstanding changes right. to their pay that needed to be processed. There were almost 500,000 individual transactions that needed to be processed. So, you know, they thought originally they were going to be able to get this handled by October of um, 2016. Well, it kept getting worse and worse through to October of uh, 2017, and in fact, I think is, is still not getting any better. Um, so part of the problem was, you know, again, they just didn't realize the extent of what they were dealing right. with. Now, at that point, it was hard for them to deal with it because what was happening was the system could not process things or the system was creating errors that would have to be processed. And all of these things meant people had to process them. Well, they had reduced all of the, right. the pay advisors, right? So those people were not around. So it has taken a long time to try and, in fact, you know, the, the main way they are trying to solve this is they have brought back, in fact, not just the number of pay advisors that, that left at the point of the new system. They, they now have even more than they had under the old system, more wow, people okay. involved trying to get all of these Clear things the, fixed. Yeah. But there's, there's still a big backlog. The backlog is still, um, is still increasing, and, and there's still a lot of work to get that sorted out. You know, so again, in, one of the things, and you know, I think you mentioned it much earlier on, you know, we, we called the project an incomprehensible failure of project management yeah. and project oversight as well. When you're looking at project oversight, that's about you can't leave a project this size just to the people who are responsible to put it in place. Okay, you need to have other people who understand system development, who can keep an eye on it and make sure that things are going the way that they should be going. And in both cases, in the case of implementing the system and in the case of trying to fix the system, there really was no good oversight, no good um, sort of direction, no good um, way of looking at what's happening and is this actually going to get us to where we want to right. get to. It was always a matter of when a problem was raised, um, PSPC would say under the original development, yes, we know that problem's there, 
but we have a way of dealing with it. We have a workaround, so it's going to be okay. And then, like I say later on, yes, we know we have a bunch of problems, but we're going to get them all solved by October of 2016. One of the things I I mentioned earlier that they cut back from, you know, when they found out the system was going to cost $270 million instead of $150 million, they cut back. But they cut back not just on the functionality. Mm -hmm. They also cut back on system testing. So one thing you would normally do with a system is you would you would pilot it perhaps right so put it in place in one small area and see how it works well they cut that out altogether so and then they and they cut back on a lot of their testing they cut back on over a hundred different functions the system was supposed to do so all of those things then led to the problems later on they saw all these problems they thought they were going to solve all these problems by october of 2016 and the problems are still continuing yikes and so is this salvageable is this are are we going to be able to get through this well um so there there are a couple of things on that i think first of all um federal civil servants need to be paid right and they need to be paid every two weeks and they should be paid on a timely basis and they should know what they're going to be paid Mm -hmm. right the problem is like i said there's at least 150,000 federal civil servants who have unprocessed information right so whether that be errors or whatever well if you were even if you were to say okay there's a new system that you can go right you can go to the walmart and you can buy this new system and you can implement it and it's a pay system and it's a perfect pay system it has to have good information right in order for it to be able to pay people the right amount right so no matter what the government has to figure out how to get this under control how to get the number of people with errors and outstanding transactions significantly reduced because you can't expect another system to all of a sudden start paying people right if if it doesn't have the right information right okay the other thing that um dawned on me i guess as as i was going through this and and looking at all of the issues that we had seen was well we can make recommendations and we always make recommendations in our audits and governments always accept our recommendations you know and i reflected on that because look we have if you look at the federal government system right there's there there are treasury board policies there are um, there's a management accountability framework of things departments are supposed to do. There are internal audits. There's program evaluations. Um, you know, there's auditor general reports. There's a whole series of controls that are supposed to be in place in the federal government precisely to prevent something like Phoenix. Right. Somehow they didn't. Okay. So. Another recommendation about another policy or um, another procedure, is that really going to solve this? And that's my biggest concern. So I fundamentally felt that there's, there's something more cultural at play that has allowed that allowed um, Phoenix to happen okay mm-hmm. and you can go back and and this thing spanned two different governments right two different governments had the opportunity to um, to get this thing on track and they didn't um, but somehow again just me coming in or us coming in and saying well you know change this policy change this procedure is that really going to prevent the next incomprehensible failure like right. phoenix or does government need to really look 
look at more deeply and say, well, is there something at play in the culture of government that actually allowed this to happen? Mm -hmm. And part of that culture, I think, is that there's a tendency for government departments to want to complete checklists and just say, yep, okay, we're supposed to do this, did this, we're supposed to do this, did this, without making sure that doing it is actually leading to... Right, giving you the result you're looking for. Exactly. That really resonates for me. I worked at a place where uh, we discovered after a long time that the reason we weren't successful at doing something is that our metrics were wrong. We had a series of things that we were we were looking to achieve, and we would achieve those every single time, but because those were not... Because we were focused on those metrics and not on the actual goal, we only achieved the metrics and not the goal. Happens happens all the time. Happens significantly in government. Um, it's an it's natural for people to do that. But what people need and and those metrics are probably useful metrics. Yeah. But they are they. But achieving those types of metrics don't tell you, as you said, whether you have actually achieved the goal or not. Um, Right, So people need to be standing back and saying, well, are we actually achieving the goal we're trying to achieve? And then are there some changes we need to make to our metrics if our metrics are telling us one thing and our goal's telling us something else? Right. Um, and, and I think that, that very much is at play. Is there anything that you can do in terms of recommendations for this as a cultural problem? Like what, what is that even part of your role? So we were doing this second audit on the Phoenix project, and the second audit was supposed to be about how did things go wrong, right? right. How, why did this not work? But an audit can only take you so far. We only get access to information so far within the government, right? Things that happen in the cabinet room um, usually are not documented anyway, and there's cabinet confidence, so we don't get access to that type of, that type of information. Um, so an audit, per se, can only take you so far. And I knew as soon as we put out the audit, because the audit primarily focused on the mistakes of the three people who were leading the project. Right. Okay. And I knew that as soon as I put that audit out, people were not going to be satisfied with just, oh, okay, this was three bureaucrats who messed it up. Right. right? People were going to say, well, w wait a minute. What about the deputy minister? What about the minister? What about the government, right? There are other people um, that need to be thought about in this. So, so I felt, okay, I need to do a whole different companion piece to the audit that's not part of the audit. It's just my opinion about sort of how do you divide up that blame, right? right? And, and so sort of, you know, went out and laid out that, you know, you've got the project managers, the deputy minister, the former government, and the current government, all of which have a certain amount of, of blame to shoulder in the course of what happened. But then it came back to me, like I said earlier, about, well, us just making more recommendations isn't going to prevent the next incomprehensible failure. And in fact, the other thing that I said in that report was incomprehensible failures are not limited to IT systems. I mean, you look at all of the time and money and things that have been spent on trying to put in place programs for Indigenous people in this country to make their their lives better. And, you know, we've done lots of audits on programs for Indigenous people that keep coming up with showing that the government is not achieving good results. And you can only call that an incomprehensible failure as well that has accumulated over a long period of time. So there is something cultural about it. The piece that I did was intended just to try and raise that question, to try and right. open that conversation. Um, I can't provide the answers 
to, for that. I can be part of the conversation. I can be. I can provide some of my thoughts and insight based on our audits. Um, but I think really, to me, the biggest takeaway of the whole Phoenix mess is don't expect to fix it just by putting in place a new policy manual. Right. There's something else at play here that the government really needs to think about. So because we like to end this always on a, a positive note, uh, is there a silver lining to this to this whole experience? Maybe it's my 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 dour nature as an auditor, right? But, um, all all glasses are are uh, are half empty, even if they're full. Um, you know, to to say actually, what it causes me to it causes me to have more concerns, right? This system and the implementation of this system is it the the failure of it is well known. It's public. The impact of it is public. Why is that? Well, it's because it's a system that pays people, right? right? So it touches people, and it touches a lot of people. Government over the years has implemented a whole bunch of other systems, systems that don't pay people, systems that are there that are intended to collect information about government programs, to help government programs be run better. Well, some of those systems may not be functioning the way that they they were supposed to, but nobody would really know because they're not cutting checks to people. So for me, it's more a matter of, um, you know, maybe a wake-up call for, for government departments to go around and say, okay, are all of these systems that we spend all of this money implementing, that people, are they all working the way they are supposed to be working? Because mm-hmm. just because they're not in the news, just because they're not mispaying people, doesn't mean that they're all functioning the way they should be functioning. Uh, Michael Ferguson, Auditor General of Canada, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Use Interact Flash to pay conveniently and securely at hundreds of thousands of merchants across Canada. Learn more at interact.ca.